Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. There is a way in which Mark Zuckerberg is definitely a dictator in the same way that, but a different type of dictator than Elon Musk is. And he certainly looks like a benevolent dictator next to, to kind of Elon Musk and like how he's been ruling Twitter. He doesn't seem to really care about this as much as he seems to care about going to Mars or building spaceships. So I think this is just some distraction for him for the time being. And then I think he will hopefully move on and hires a real CEO to, to run things. That's Kate Klanick. She had a ringside seat as Facebook struggled with finding a way to police itself. She's now bringing that insider's view to the whole social media world, as it's being shaken up now by Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. This is so great to be talking with you, because interestingly, you're dealing with one of the biggest problems in communication in the world today. Because the way the world communicates with itself is unregulated. How is speech monitored now, if at all? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, of course, speech is monitored. And I actually think that's a wonderful place to start because I think one of the, the myths of kind of the free speech ideal, um, the marketplace of ideas, the, um, the kind of the First Amendment is that it's a completely unregulated uh, environment. And of course, that's not entirely true. We know that when you're in a park, for instance, and you're there with your real face in your real community, that you have certain reputational costs that you're going to, you know, encounter if you start cursing someone out and your neighbors see you. Or, um, you know, people don't like it when you are going to like shame you if you do something like that. There's plenty of ways that we regulate speech through norms and norm enforcement and then also laws and the marketplace that we decide what we want to listen to and what we don't want to listen to, who we want to hear from, who we don't want to hear from. And I, I think that that is uh, one of the biggest things that people miss in the Internet is that it's actually um, – has to recreate a lot of those physical frictions in order to kind of regulate the space of speech uh, that we have kind of enjoyed for all of, you know, all of humanity. So Elon Musk's favorite identification phrase as a free speech absolutist 
It sounds like you're saying it's not really possible to be a free speech absolutist in the real world. It's kind of a tell to me when someone doesn't know exactly what it is they're talking about when it comes to free speech. (laughs) But no, he is definitely not. And we have certainly seen that over the last few weeks that he has taken over Twitter. And yet some of the restrictions, some of the boundaries on free speech that exist in the public park or the town square don't exist on social media. For instance, you're not there with your real face. You're not there with your real name in most cases or many cases. My experience driving a car has been if I'm trying to get onto a busy road and the other drivers are not looking me in the eye, I can't get on. If they make eye contact with me, suddenly there's a responsibility that, that takes over and they slow down and let me in in many cases. But if you're totally anonymous and nobody, nobody's eyes are on you and your eyes are not on anybody else's, you don't have that. What, what do we lose not having it or, or, or don't we lose? Yeah. So um, just Jeff Kosef, um, who is a law professor at the Naval Academy, has a wonderful book about this called The United States of Anonymous that is basically all about this question. But the general, I think you, you hit on it perfectly, which is just generally the idea that we communicate through making through design choices. We communicate through body language. All of that is lost. This is one of the things that I think that the internet really kind of has unleashed and we have been coping for the last 30 years of trying to understand. The problem is that there is what we have also seen with anonymity online um, is that it actually frees many people that feel silenced and marginalized in certain types of communities to have community and to have voices, whether it's a a gay teenager feeling like they can be their true self when they don't have to tie it to their actual name and face, or, you know, a black person having a community on black Twitter or something like that, that there is a, that there is freedom and anonymity. And the other thing is that to, you know, to, to put a point on what you said, it's actually very, very hard to do true verification of an, and even if you wanted to do it, it is actually physically and pragmatically almost impossible. The the technology for that type of thing is still literally having holding up your driver's license next to your face and taking a picture and having another person review it to make sure that the person and and we've. I mean, how many of us have gone to underage bars or like know that that's not the best way to do certain <laughs> yeah, types of right. verification? So, so that's kind of it's 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 a it's I think that uh, I think it's a, a hard question to solve. The number of people that have to be hired to examine all the posts sounds impossible to really make it happen. Three billion users on Facebook. How many posts a day does that mean? A half a billion, a billion, two billion? I don't know. And 15,000 people may be trying to accomplish oversight. Doesn't sound possible. And yet, you got thrown off Twitter. What? How did that happen? Yeah, it's really, that was that was a funny day. Because, you know, you're, you're an, an expert in online speech governance and content moderation. And all of a sudden, you realize that you've been banned from Twitter and Facebook. Um And I had a a lot of people I knew at the companies because I do my research in this area. So I could shake a few trees and get back on. I'm sure you could like contact a few people if you're a verified account and shake a few trees if you got banned. But it basically No, on the contrary. I didn't get banned. Did you get banned from Twitter? I didn't get banned. It wasn't quite that bad. But I posted a, a short video 
30 seconds or so of me and, and Anthony Fauci talking about getting more people vaccinated. And I yeah. made the suggestion to him that the best ambassadors are people getting vaccinated if they could take pictures of it that their friends would see and they could describe the experience to them. They could be good ambassadors. Instead of selfies, I called them vaxies. <laughs> kind That's of good. a <laughs> terminally cute term. So it did well when I posted it. So I thought, well, I'll try to make, I'll try to broaden the reach. And I, I made it an ad. The ad got bounced. And I got a computer-generated email that said, you've broken the rules, change the offensive wording, and you can get back in. But they wouldn't tell me what the offensive wording was. And I asked them three times, ending with, is, am I, can I speak to a human? But the machine wasn't programmed to read that sentence. Yeah. So, um, as you know, these platforms have arguably their own First Amendment rights, but they are private platforms that you can make the, whatever rules you want. So if they want to make a rule that you can't use the word vaccination in an ad— or- or Fauci. I don't know what they thought or was what it was. They can make that rule. People get stuck in Twitter purgatory all the time. And one of the things that I get really depressed about is a lot of times it's people that have no leverage and no power in the real world, which is actually just kind of like, um, is, you know, is the internet is just one extension of that. Um, but like, you know, it's kids who are going to be high school football recruits in Texas and they, you have to have an Instagram page now, or you have to have a whole Twitter profile to be able to get recruited and get a scholarship and go to school. Some, someone flags your account erroneously and your, your account gets erroneously taken down either for malicious Mm. reasons or accidentally. And, like, I've gotten emails from kids' parents. I mean, I'm just giving one example. I get them from sex workers. I get them from people from, like, from feminists. I get them from, you know, I get them from conservatives who feel like their voices have been silenced. Um, that there, that there's, like, there's a real sense of loss. And sometimes it's economic for people. Like, or it's really about kind of their future, as in the case with kind of some of these kids. I mean, the kids will probably be fine, but it it does throw a wrench in like a lot of people. People have come to rely on these services. They're a huge part of our lives now. What about when your voice was silenced? What, what was the story? Why did you get thrown off Twitter? What went wrong in your post? Yeah, so I think that if I'm remembering correctly, I had used some type of word that had been algorithmically banned. It was a quote from someone. It wasn't like me saying uh, like say- saying something that to someone. But it's kind of amazing that we don't have anything more fine grained than that. How do you yeah. like this is you know this is you'll understand this more than probably almost anyone. It's hard to know what is serious and what is sarcastic or what is humor. Or what is is merely merely ironic. Oh, totally. And what's stated for a political purpose. There's so much intentionality and tone in speech. And humor is incredibly based on our ability to basically slightly change the tone or to not purposefully identify that we're making a joke. You would kind of ruin a lot of jokes if you said, this is a joke. Uh, at yeah. the offset. And so how you allow for peop- the full range of human expression while stopping things like death threats ends up seeming, sounding very, very simple out of the box. Like, we'll just not allow death threats. But then you get all these false positives, all of these dolphins that get caught in the net. 
and I, I don't know. I don't know what what Elon Musk thinks he's going to be able to do to magically solve that problem, but I'm I I have I have low expectations. <laughs> yeah, I I think there's kind of a base problem with this. First, you have to decide what should be blocked, and that's different probably when you go from culture to culture. What's no good to be said? What's allowed to be said here, but not in Myanmar? Oh. You don't even have to go so far as Myanmar with different languages. Like, think about the, the 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 slur for gay people in the United States is also a word as a common word for a cigarette in Britain. And if you and yeah. people are speaking the same language, uh, and there are different usages that are that are permissible in one context and not in another. Um, the, this happens like all the time. Language is an incredibly fluid structure. And also the intonation of of language changes over time. So when I was younger on the internet, we never used the skull emoji to signify that something was really funny. You know, like like you're dead, like that's the joke is that you show that, that you have like, you, when someone makes you laugh, you do the skull emoji because it's like, I'm dead from laughing type of thing. I'm hearing this for the first time. I didn't know what the skull emoji was for. <laughs> yeah, but like, how would anyone know that? If you saw a skull emoji, if I said yeah. the skull emoji, you'd be like, Kate's making a death threat. Like, I well, don't it's, know. It's like, the, it's like the grandma who texted her grandchildren, Grandpa died today, LOL, thinking it meant lots of love. Oh my God, exactly, exactly. I mean, so there's all of these types of, there's all of these types of things. Listen, that's a tale as old as time. Language changing, like culture mm. changing, being across. What's so hard is that these are transnational private platforms that are doing this at such an incredible scale and rate and that language is changing even faster than it ever did before because all of these cultures are coming into contact with each other. So much more communication is happening than ever happened before. Um, did you watch the 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 Will Smith slap at like the Oscars? That was like an incredible moment yeah, on Twitter. That bounced afterwards. around the world within milliseconds. It was just amazing, and like there were like ten different memes that had like ten different meanings and like ten different types of jokes in ten different ways in my own feed made by my own friends within. 35 seconds of it happening, I felt like. Mm. And so it was just kind of like that entire meme is, you know, that kind of use of a moment or a cultural moment becomes almost a piece of language and has its own, its own annotation. It has its own ability to kind of convey some type of meaning to individuals. And sometimes that can be a really narrow band of people that you're, you know, that you're using something with like that with how that gets captured in algorithm is almost impossible to get right. Now, with, with all of this in the background of Elon Musk's head, what do you have a prediction about what's going to happen to Twitter under his ownership? Yeah, um, I have a couple of predictions. I think that my, my I'll give you my, my most optimistic um, prediction first, which is that he gets bored and hires a real CEO to, to run things. I think that that's, I think that that's possibly likely. I don't really think this is his passion project. I don't like to crawl inside people's heads and guess what their, what their, what their, you know, dreams or desires are, but he doesn't seem to really care about this as much as he seems to care about going to Mars or building spaceships or whatever. So I think this is just some distraction for him for the time being. And then I think he will hopefully move on. Um, and, 
I also think that he might be forced to do so if he goes into bankruptcy or something else, um, or he lo- continues to lose advertisers. The the other the other alternative is that he goes into bankruptcy and Twitter eventually kind of shutters or um, or like it just becomes kind of a very spammy, poor advertising campaigns, poor, not as many good people producing content. You have a lot of people who are smart and more on the liberal side of the spectrum that are celebrities or whoever else that he like gets free content from um, going elsewhere because they don't want to support him. And so I think I could totally see that um, happening also. Um, But generally, I think it's going to continue bumbling along um, for the time being. And slowly there will be like there will be software updates that don't happen. It won't match with other types of things and happening in the app stores and things like that. And there will actually be software flaws because he's fired so many engineers. But I think that those are fairly limited. Um, Those are going to be fairly limited. And mostly it's just going to be like, it just becomes a less enjoyable site to be on. When we come back from our break, I ask Kate Klinick what can be done about one of my big worries. The tendency of social media to drive us all into silos, cutting us off from other opinions and deepening the divisions between us. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Kate Klonick. A few years ago, she had a front-row seat as the company that pioneered social media wrestled with how to keep out craziness and hate. You were present as Facebook was trying to solve this problem with a huge project. What was that like? First of all, how did you get in and into the position of being able to observe it and write about it? Yeah. 
I started writing in this area when I was doing my PhD at Yale, um, and I decided to do online speech governance. And at the time, people really were not aware that online speech governance was happening, content moderation was happening. It's actually very incredible to think that um, when my piece, my law review article that described how Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube did a lot of its content moderation came out, it was 2018. It's crazy, actually, to think that was only four years ago. Like, that was only four years that the world has been aware that this is, like, I think that the, the like, popular press and, like, the, the general pub public have been aware that this is a thing that is happening. Um, but I think that in that time, uh, one of the things that Facebook did was that it received a ton of blame, obviously, for the 2016 election in the United States. And... One of the things that Mark Zuckerberg decided he wanted to do is to start the Facebook Oversight Board, the so-called Facebook Supreme Court. Um, and at that point, Facebook was consulting more and more with outside stakeholders. And I had been one of the first researchers kind of in the door and writing about this. And so I just asked, I just asked, can I, you know, you say you want to have this transparent board. Wouldn't What could be more transparent than having someone come in without an NDA um, and recording everything for the course of nine months? And meeting with the team that does this and basically writing up what the process was to create this um, and holding your feet to the fire a little bit. And so that's, and they agreed to it. And so I didn't get paid by them or I've never taken any money from tech companies. Um, but I spent nine months basically interviewing all of the people involved in observing the process basically as a rapporteur and then writing about it for the Yale Law Journal and the New Yorker. Um, and it was, it was fascinating. Uh, you know, there is a way in which Mark Zuckerberg is definitely a dictator in the same way that, but a different type of dictator than Elon Musk is. And he certainly looks like a benevolent dictator next to to kind of Elon Musk and like how he's been ruling Twitter. Uh, and so I don't know how we're ever going to solve that dictatorial problem, but the oversight board was trying to kind of open the door to kind of creating different zone, different kind of branches of governance in online speech platforms. They invited people from all over the world so they could have a variety of viewpoints. Yep. Did, did that turn out to be a profitable discussion? Were they able to collaborate or were there just a cacophony of viewpoints? Yeah, there was both. I It was actually fascinating to be at all the different regional discussions, and they did really vary by region. Um, Europe was just so angry at Facebook and just spent the whole time kind of yelling at them. Everyone in New York just wanted to talk about themselves and like their own experience <laughs> with the platform. So like I, that was, I, I was like, wow, this is like the most New York, uh, the, the most New York thing ever. One of my favorite moments was there was a room full of people from all walks of life. And they were talking about, they, were, they asked the group who should be on the board, who should serve on this board. And like the international human rights lawyers were like, well, obviously it should just be international human rights lawyers. And then like <laughs> everyone who wasn't a lawyer was like, anyone but lawyers, don't put this, don't make this board <laughs> full of like, don't make this board full of lawyers. And like journalists were like, it should just all be journalists. Um, and it was kind of, it was a fascinating study in how an institution gets developed and how the people in the room and the, you know, the people in the room matter. Um, and so obviously you, were, you can't get a huge swath, but I would say that there was, uh, it was also very interesting how, how, how self-interested people are. And it was, that, that part of it was like a little predictable, but I think that people balanced it out pretty well. 
Well, it certainly matters who's deciding what should be prohibited and what should be okay. But even if you just leave it up to the people themselves, the consumers themselves, my worry is that it leads to more siloing, that people will only hear from the person on the soapbox that they want to listen to, and they don't get to wander around the public square within earshot of other soapboxes and other opinions. In my mind, that seems to have been a big contributor to the cleft that we have in the society now. Yeah. I think that one of the things that people have come to blame online platforms, speech platforms for, is this ad-based revenue model. But to your point, I want to contrast that with what like the opposite of that would be, which is essentially a paid subscription model or something like that. And paid subscription models are typically smaller, and you don't pay for something that's going to force you to see things that you don't really want to see. Just like, I don't know, I wouldn't pay, or that you're not interested in. So like, I wouldn't pay for, you know, I would pay for Popular Mechanics, but I wouldn't pay for Town and Country Magazine, right? And being in those subscription models would mean that I never get exposed to like something interesting that happens in Town and Country Magazine. And that is a model of siloing that has always existed. One of the ways that a general open space, like a public forum, gets funded is through advertising revenue by basically building in the present your presence there into how that site is funded and not making it tethered to certain types of silos. So I actually, you know, one of the things that I think is undervalued about ad revenue models is that they have this democratizing effect. Um, And you see this actually, newspapers do such an interesting job with this by matching having advertising and having this kind of subscription model where you have like the banker can have a $15 a month delivered at his door subscription. Um, He also has to see ads, Um, but you know, the boot black can buy for 15 cents. A, a newspaper on the corner if he sees something that he wants to read or you know or something like that. So it's actually kind of that type of having a mix of those models is really uh, is I think actually key towards getting away from um, this siloed culture. And I think that you're right. We should be afraid of kind of people just like especially if Musk tries to take this subscription only. There probably a lot of voices are not going to want to pay for the type of model that he's that he's purporting and we'll lose the public space that we've had because of an ad revenue model. I guess I'm basing part of my fear on the fact that I tend to see, I tend to be fed things to look at based on what I've looked at before. I get politically loaded offers to look at videos on my iPhone that I know are not coming to the person next door. They're coming to me because I've looked at something like that, but nothing as extreme as that, by the way. They're taking me several steps more into more extreme worlds because they think that's, that's what I'll go for. Now, I don't know if that's a subscription model or an advertising model that's doing that, but some, some choice is being made for me about what to look at by an algorithm. And I find that scary and spooky. Yeah, I think a lot of people find that scary and spooky. And I think that there could be more transparency about how you could basically see other people's, um, what other people's feeds look like. I'm curious, does it ever happen that you see something that you 
that you like and that you you don't follow the you don't follow the person or you don't know how it showed up in your feed but you like it and that's something that like you know or it makes you think a little bit more about something um just as you kind of get the opposite i mostly notice more extreme examples of what i generally am interested in so that i'm invited to go even further deeper into the silo yeah i think that that's right I think that there is there is obviously a push towards certain types of content and more extreme content. Um, certain there have there has been research recently suggesting that that's actually less happens slightly less than we think that it does. Um, Josh Tucker at NYU has done a bunch of research on this, who's and um, it shows that essentially like YouTube actually pushes even though a lot of people think that YouTube pushes you towards more extremist types of content, it actually kind of pushes people towards the middle, which some, which actually makes sense if you consider that advertisers don't want their ads served next to very, very extremist content because it's bad for brand safety. And so like having people view kind of milk toast um, content is actually sometimes better uh, for advertising and advertising revenue than others, but it's not as engaging as the extreme stuff. So it's this constant balance back and forth. And you want people to be engaged, but you don't want them to be so outraged or so depressed that they sign off the platform, right? And so this is kind of, this is like a very gentle kind of, it is it is quite the difficult uh, job that these platforms have signed themselves up for to try to figure out exactly how to curate these these feeds for individuals uh, without insulting them, but while making them want to stick around and read more. And I, I mean, I think that I think that I'm probably your experience is uh, very common. Well, what was the outcome of the Facebook or Meta project? to try to accomplish this? Did they make headway? Yeah. So eventually um, Meta, now Meta, but then Facebook, uh, appointed a um, an oversight board. Um, and it has been uh, making decisions. Uh, it basically very much like the Supreme Court of the United States gets a number of appeals that get lodged to it and then kind of calls from that um, and decides certain, certain cases that they want to make decisions on and then writes decisions and solicits feedback from outside stakeholder groups and then writes uh, decisions. And then those are um, not binding on on Facebook, but now they take that signal from the board and they say, we're probably going to institute, create a new kind of rule around this, a new way of doing things, put this to work, make sure that like this is going to be part of our policy going forward. Because the other thing that you should remember is like, it's not great PR for Facebook to constantly be in charge of this. Every time someone is mad that their speech came down or somebody else's speech stayed up, they're mad at Facebook. And that's really bad for Facebook's brand. And so the idea that essentially they can kick this over to the oversight board, get a signal from them, and then they can, and that the oversight board has a slightly more legitimate process or at least some process that they can then make decisions from. That is, I think, probably a win in a lot of ways for Facebook. So I, I've read that you've opened an account on a, another social media platform called Mastodon. How does that match up? Yeah, it's for old fogies. No, I, I, it's, <laughs> uh, it's um, what, Mastodon. Why, why do you yeah. say that? 
Oh, just because mastodons are like this extinct uh, <laughs> uh, creature. But um, <laughs> yeah, but no, it's a, but it is what's called part of the Fediverse, which is a type of social media site that is run on individual servers and basically allows kind of more um, fine grained curation of who you follow. And there is no algorithm. Things populate uh, chronologically in her feed, depending on how people say them. And in fact, it can feel a bit like a fire hose if you follow too many people because you're just constantly getting updates um, on all of these different people saying things. Um, so it doesn't have kind of the legibility and it also doesn't have the ability to basically prompt you to follow people. It's very hard to, there's no directory at Mastodon essentially. So it's very hard to just like type in someone's name and find them. Um, and so you have to kind of, it, it, it's, not, it's not as foolproof and it is not as user-friendly a, um, an alternative by any means to Twitter. Um, and I don't expect it'll be the long-term solution. I suspect it is a little bit of a, um, a fail-safe. And I, I, I think that there are probably going to be new, uh, and there's a couple that are percolating right now, but a couple new social media sites that kind of rise up to take the place of Twitter. There are so many sites that have the need to curate what's up there. Wikipedia, a whole bunch of them. Does anyone do it really well now who, who ought to be copied? Yeah. So this is such a great question. And one of the reasons this is such a great question is because every, like Wikipedia, you just mentioned Wikipedia. Wikipedia's model is based, it's a nonprofit model. It is a model that is based on the availability of information and a, and like a a certain um, culture of editors and reviewers that kind of, that has been developed iteratively over time. It is almost entirely text-based um, and it exists in static pages, right? So, you know, you can go and look something up, but that type of product, that type of service that Wikipedia is providing is not social media. It is not like this constant barrage of like what you had for breakfast, right? It is, you know, if you're going to find out um, your Wikipedia page, which I know you have a story about with uh, with your how you met your wife, uh, which is one of my favorite stories, by the way, <laughs> um, and uh, that there is like that those things get curated. And if it gets flagged as false, there are people who can go in and change it that are editors. There's a whole system in place for that. Reddit is like a whole different like kind of like group of different communities that doesn't have a ton of tops down centralized moderation and has volunteers on all of these different subreddits that basically work to curate and create a community for a certain type of ideas and come up with all of their own content moderation rules for every single subreddit that exists, whether that's true crime or cute animal videos or whatever else, and just decides, like, you know, what they're going to say and do. But again, those are different types of communities, and people go there for different things um, than they do to YouTube, uh, which is all video, which is, you know, something like 200 thousand hours uploaded a second i can't even like imagine huh. like how you a you second. know oh my god it's just amazing an it's just like an incredible volume well this has been enlightening talking with you i i i hope for the best but now my hope is infused with a little more nuance that thanks to you and i appreciate it very much we we end every show with seven quick questions are you game they're, they're yeah. generally to do with communication as long as you don't ask me to fix your email. No. <laughs> That's the eighth question. 
First question, what do you wish you really understood? Oh, I really wish I understood how we form preferences in our brain. Okay, that's a really dorky answer. But I like, I don't, I also just really wish I understood, for example, like why some people are really good at music and why some people are really good at languages and other people just can't learn them and things like that. I really wish that we like, there was an understanding of that. Okay, number two, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? You have your facts wrong. (laughs) 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 I'm I'm very direct. (laughs) You you need to be on one of these boards. I mean, I'm I'm like a lawyer raised by lawyers. And so like, I'm just not afraid of much confrontation. So I'm just like, (laughs) yeah, that's not right. (laughs) What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Um, I guess the first thing that comes to mind recently was, um, when I was in Iceland staying in an Airbnb and I was out in the, in the barnyard with the, with the farmer that was owner of the Airbnb. And she asked me if I would help her birth a baby lamb that, that was given, <sighs> that the, that the mother was, I'm like, yeah, okay, guess I'm going to do that now. So yeah, that you was scared, a weird one. You scared me for a minute. It turned out to be birthing a lamb. That's better. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was an ama- It ended up being this kind of incredible experience, but that was like, you don't really expect that when you're on vacation. Yeah. Okay, next. How do you stop a compulsive talker? I just talk over them. Well, you really are a powerhouse. I mean, I feel, I mean, you're also making me feel like I'm not a very nice person. (laughs) 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 I think I saved myself a little bit with the delivering a baby lamb story. Yeah, 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 you're you're totally warm and fuzzy. Don't worry about it. How do you strike up a genuine conversation if you're sitting next to someone at a dinner table and you never met them before? Yeah, I ask them something about themselves, and then when they say something, or I volunteer something kind of vulnerable about myself and try to make them feel comfortable to share something vulnerable about their zones. You know, based on your other answers, I'm surprised you don't say, speak up. <laughs> Just tell me something interesting about yourself. <laughs> 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 I think that also, like, a lot of the context you ask the other questions, like, I'm in rooms with people all the time, especially older male professors or, mm. um, you know, attorneys, that they just do talk over you. And if you are if you don't kind of shove your way to the front, you're never going to kind of have a seat at the table type of thing. So I, I do yeah, think I, that, like, some of those questions are different for me. This question comes at the right moment. What What gives you confidence? Oh, um... When I actually, when I feel like I'm making people laugh. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I feel like I'm kind of making people happy. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Last question. What book changed your life? Oh, um, this is a weird one. But um, when I was in sixth grade, I read Harrison Bergeron. It's a short story in Welcome to the Monkey House by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, and it's a story about... Um, the future and world in which everyone is equal, but 2080 or something, and everyone is finally equal. And the way that everyone is equal is that they have beautiful people have to wear horrible masks and smart people have auditory devices that interrupt their thoughts and very like, very like uh, strong people have to wear bags of birdshot to like weigh them down. And this is like, everyone is finally equal by kind of being, and I don't think it's, it's actually kind of a very problematic story now that I'm older and kind of look at it, 
but it was important for me because it made me, I think I was a very kind of act like, you know, active thinker when I was that age. And to me, equality just seemed like a neutral good. Like it just could never be anything other than good to have things be equal. And it, 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 it was the first thing that I'd read as like, as I was kind of coming of age that made me realize that issues were more complicated. Mm, yeah, the the introduction of complication into big questions sounds like a real gift. Yeah, and like I said, it's not a perfect story. I don't even agree with it that much anymore, but it just yeah, made yeah. me think differently. Yeah, this has been great talking with you. You made me think differently, too. Thank you. Yeah, and please be in touch if you ever need anyone to interpret emojis for you. I'm, I'm, I'm totally here for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Kate. Yeah, it was great meeting you. I was just going to say that I have seen MASH so many times, um, and I love it. And I'm like, I'm, it's not in my age, like I'm not the age range that should know MASH, but I've watched it seven times all the way through. Like, I like, like, anyways, I I just think it's a, it was just one of my, it's just a beautifully done, thoughtful, thoughtful, Thank you so much. Brilliant. I have to tell you, I've seen it all the way through once. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Kate Klanick is an associate professor of law at St. John's University Law School. She's currently in residence at Harvard University's Rebooting Social Media Initiative. You can follow her at kate at clonic at mastodon.social. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with NASA engineer and science fiction writer Les Johnson. He recently watched nervously as NASA's giant moon rocket carried not only the Orion capsule into space but also a shoebox-sized satellite Les had designed that was catching a ride. Once free of the rocket, that tiny spacecraft was designed to spread its wings and sail to an asteroid. But for Les Johnson, that's just one small step toward what he hopes one day will be humans sailing to the stars. When the first settlement on a planet circling another star, when the historians there are writing the books of their history, of how that came to be. My work on solar sails or other things that I've worked on in my professional career be at least a footnote in that history book. I won't see it in my lifetime, but I'm hoping one of my descendants will look back and say, yeah, that was my great, 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 great grandfather. Les Johnson, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. 
Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement. While another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.